Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate in Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, and a research fellow here at Acton. Today, we're going to be discussing uh, a dual in-memoriam episode where we'll discuss the legacies of both Queen Elizabeth II and Mikhail Gorbachev, and then a little bit of commentary at the end about the currently ongoing National Conservative Conference in Miami. We will start with uh, Queen Elizabeth II, who uh, passed away on September 8th at uh, the age of 93, a uh, really remarkable life for somebody who was never expected to be the British monarch. She was third in line for succession. And uh, because of circumstances, including an abdication of the throne, ends up becoming uh, the monarch, uh, the queen of uh Great Britain. Um, just to, I saw this uh, over the weekend to drive home how, you know, I think it was 15 prime ministers, 15 or 16 that she swore in, Liz Truss, the most recent, just two days before she passed. The first that she swore in was Winston Churchill. It will give you a sense of how much time her uh, reign really has spanned. So, Dan, I'll go to you first. Um, so this is... This is interesting to me from a couple of perspectives because we've had conversations about certainly her life, the things that transpired in the world and certainly in the British Empire and the end of the British Empire and even conversations about empire in and of itself that have been spurred by this. Uh, But what do you think will be the enduring legacy of Queen Elizabeth II and how should we – how should we think about what – I think strikes most of us, although maybe when we get to the national conservative part of this later, um, as a outdated concept of a monarchy uh, being so influential still within the British system. She presided over the making of modern Britain. Uh, quite simply, decolonization was underway, but was still ongoing when she assumed the throne. Um, she has presided over a massive liberalization of the economy in Britain from a war economy with rationing, um, with extensive production quotas, with all of those things that come along in wartime and that endured for a while in Britain afterwards with, uh, with, uh, with socialist government. Um, And she really presided over the liberalization and modernization of England. She's done all of that while maintaining a continuity traditions, which is why I think there is such an overwhelming outpouring of support for her and the royal family. She managed a very delicate balancing act and is uh, in a way sort of the ultimate conservative statesman. If we to take conservatism as being something that uh, 
bridges that gap that looks back, that anchors us in the past, but allows for a sort of organic development into the future. Um, she really served that constitutional role expertly uh, through some difficult times with her uncle, um, whose abdication uh, caused a crisis and whose sort of ongoing social life and foibles was a thorn in the crown's side. And she managed to manage that as she's managed other crises uh, with uh, her, you know, prominent divorces of her children. Um, you know, there are many sort of celebrity watchers would who would quibble with certain decisions made in the royal family that perhaps the royal family was too protective of itself in those circumstances. But uh, the legacy seems to be that those breaches are ones that she was always looking to heal and minimize, maintaining both the integrity of the state and, and the integrity of the family during immensely challenging times. The recounting here, just uh, reading from uh, her Wikipedia entry of the political changes that uh, she was the monarch during – uh, including the troubles of Northern Ireland, devolution in the United Kingdom, the decolonization of Africa, the United Kingdom's ascension to the European communities and its withdrawal from the European Union. Um, I think in the, the sense that we in, here in the United States, right, we have the combination of the head of government and the head of state in, the sing, in a single person. Here we have a uh, – in the British system – uh, a separation between the two of them, that you have the head of government in the prime minister and you have this constitutional monarchy and you have the head of state symbolized by the queen. So if we set aside, I think, some of the ways that particularly as talking about this as Americans who fought a revolutionary war in order to throw off the monarchy, um, the rule of the British, uh, well, now we – we look at it and we see the importance of that head of state and that leadership that she provided over time and through a lot of changes um, and seemed to guide the country uh, pretty well in that sense. Yeah. So when I, when I you know, heard the news, um, certainly I was like, wow, you know, it, she's been queen forever. You know, of course, my entire life uh, she's, she's on Canadian money. Um, you know, it's... It's sort of thing that it's it's weird to think of a world without Queen Elizabeth II. Um, on the other hand, I'm very American, and I feel a little like Mark Twain sometimes. Uh, people have commented that his his book, The Innocence Abroad, where he goes and he tours uh, Europe, is one of the first books to comment on Europe as if America is the center of the universe, um, and as if what Americans doing is not weird, and what everyone else is doing is weird, um, and and I very much. That's my perspective. I know that what the world I live in is really weird from a world historical perspective, but I can't get out of my head that having a queen is a weird thing. Um, but it or a monarch for that matter, you know, now they have a king. Um, but there, there is aspects of that and exactly what you just mentioned um, that I do find admirable that, uh, you know, as an American, I do not acknowledge the Queen of England <laughs> as my queen, right? I am an American and not uh, a Britain. But um, I do think there's a lesson to be learned at the very least of this idea of maybe thinking about separating head of state and head of government. Uh, we have 
every four years, presidential elections, um, which basically always have been popularity contests, but I think more and more so uh, with most recently uh, our, our previous president being an actual celebrity first uh, and then becoming a president. Um, to and, the maybe, pre- and the president prior to that being essentially a political celebrity. Yes. Yeah. And so and thinking about, you know, is there is there some genuine utility in terms of preserving the institutions, traditions, freedoms of a nation in separating those things out um, and having someone in, in her role, as Dan already mentioned, was not nothing at all, as much as that's kind of the joke, again, from an American perspective that, oh, you have a queen, she doesn't do anything, you know. Um, but she did she did plenty of things. There's a lot to do in that leadership role. Um, and yet, you know, we supposedly have this government based on limiting powers, division of powers, that sort of thing. And yet we consolidate head of state, head of government in the president, um, and more and more so as uh, presidents are acting through executive orders. We talked, uh, you know, just a week ago, was it? It feels like a long time ago, uh, about student loans uh, and the executive order, about that from uh, President Biden. Um, and things like that are happening all the time where Congress is not really doing their job, where every party and every person, every American is looking for the new president to basically be the new, uh, you know, political politician king um, or queen. uh, And it's not a healthy thing, I don't think. Um, And so it is the sort of thing that is as much as for me, again, it's it's just weird. (laughs) I can't like get around the weirdness of having a monarch as much as I know that that's like most nations for all of history. Um, I still I still can take a step back and say, well, you know, that doesn't mean that there's nothing here uh, that maybe we could benefit from and that maybe we've lost uh, despite uh, some of the advantages of our system. There's been a lot of commentary on Britain having a monarch, uh, even from uh, British citizens that I've seen who it, it reeks to me of a lot of year zero kind of thinking that we can just take all of this tradition that has informed the system that is currently the British governmental system, this idea that we can all just tear it down completely and start over again and everything will be fine. Certainly there are traditions that are held on to perhaps beyond their real usefulness. But uh, this is just a very simple fundamental Chesterton's fence kind of point that, you know, understand why the fence is there before you go about tearing it down. And as some of my British friends have uh, explained to me over time that, as you alluded to, Dylan, it is not true that the queen, the monarch, does nothing. Even though there is a House of Parliament, even though there is a prime minister, it is not true that the monarch has no real role. I mean, it, it facilitates the uh, when a you know, new party is voted in, a new prime minister comes to power, it is the queen or the king who is swearing that person in. There are roles and duties that that person performs. And this intention that I think you see from a lot of people to, you know, look at a monarchy in the same way that I think you were just describing, and certainly it is my uh, intuition as well to look at it kind of askance because it seems just like a very, at best, dated idea of how a system of government should be formed. Uh, but to look at it and think that we can just completely throw all of these things off without, at minimum, recognizing unwinding all of that is, would be very, very difficult to do. And I think one has to ask themselves how well served are the British people, despite the expense of the royal family, by 
the system that they have. And I think, for, at least from my conversations with my British friends, they seem to believe that they are pretty well served by that system. They all have complaints about British society. They all have complaints about the things the government is doing, is not doing, should be doing, should not be doing. But none of them really, other than these uh, cries that I think rise to the top at moments like this when somebody passes and there's too many people imbibing the Christopher Hitchens notion of if we don't speak ill of the dead, who will, uh, who just seem to want to whine and complain, but without really by my lights, being able to clearly articulate what the problem is that would necessitate, from a British perspective, the abolition of the royal family and the monarchy. Well, they tried that, right? They had a glorious revolution. <laughs> um, and there's a reason why uh, they went back to having a king. There is also a way in which the sort of attractive features that I think Dylan rightly points to and that Eric pointed to about separating the head of state from the head of government is something that's also accomplished in Republican governments through typically an office called the president, as it is in Germany. Um, Angela Merkel was never the president of Germany. There were different presidents that acted as head of state that undertake functions very similar to some of those that Eric outlined in a non-monarchical context. So there is, I think, an enduring lesson to be learned, not only from monarchical examples of this sort of function as we have in England, but also uh, what we have uh, on many Republican governments. I think one of the things, at, at Dylan's point about the uh, that Mark Twain way of of looking at the world, uh, I think, is instinctual to most Americans uh, for for good reasons and for bad and for legitimate reasons and for illegitimate reasons. But something that I often think accompanies that is especially amongst well, until recently, on the political right, amongst conservatives, particularly, is this idea almost of the. You know, the the founding father's version of papal infallibility, uh, that it couldn't be wrong because it was the vision of the founders. When I think they pretty clearly recognized that changes may need to be made to the system that they created, which is why they included a way of amending the Constitution in the Constitution. So the way that the head of government, the head of state are combined in the person of the presidency. You know, perhaps it's true that they could not have envisioned the way that it would become essentially you know, electing a – ambassador is even the wrong word, but like a tribune of the country. You know, is this, this one person that represents all that is America and has turned into this divisive figure in which we fight over you know, how important it feels that our guy or our woman is the person who is occupying that presidency. Dan's point is a good one that there are other ways of – of handling that, but there do it does strike me that there seems to be advantages. Well, of course, I am not advocating that we create some kind of a monarchy. Again, we'll get to the Nat National Conservative Conference in a little bit, but I'm not advocating we create a monarchy. Perhaps the idea of that separation of the head of state and the head of government is something that would have some uh, real utility for us. The only problem is making a change like that uh, requires a level of agreement that is just seems incapable of the American people being able to come to at this point in time. Uh, one separation we do have here that they don't have 
there. Uh, is that the monarch is also the head of the church, uh, the established church, the Church of Defender England. Defender of the faith. Um, yes, and we have no established church in the United States. It's the First Amendment uh, to our Constitution. Um, and on the one hand, in principle, I definitely favor our constitutional approach. On the other hand, in practice, uh, she was kind of great. Um, at least in every yeah, every Christmas message every year, um, you could see, and maybe she just had good writers. I don't know. You know, I don't know how it works. Maybe the Archbishop of Canterbury writes her speech and she just reads it or whatever. But it was the sort of thing that it didn't sound like a pre-packaged, you know, like our, when our politicians give religious messages, usually they're hitting on these little kind of quasi-spiritual, quasi-patriotic uh, touch points and that sort of thing. Whereas hers, I felt like these were genuine statements from a cr real Christian leader, someone who's, whose heart was in fact touched uh, by their faith. Um, and that's the sort of thing that uh, is absolutely valuable for a nation, even though I, again, don't favor, uh, you know, having an established church. Um, and I think that a lot of the history of England uh, shows the downside of that. Um, but uh, there is there is that aspect of her legacy, and that's actually probably the one I'm most familiar with, given my theological background. Um, and that's something that, uh, you know, I hope that it is right up there with all of the diplomatic, you know, political achievements and legacy. I hope people talk about, uh, you know, her spiritual leadership as well. Yeah, Richard Turnbull had a really great piece that we uh, published on Friday and we'll include in the show notes that had uh, a couple of uh, excerpts from those Christmas messages, one from 2011, God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a savior with the power to forgive. And the following year, this is the time of year when we remember that God sent his only son, quote, to serve, not to be served. He restored love and service to the center of our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. And as uh, Dr. Turnbull goes on to say later in the piece uh, near the end here, Charles III is now king. He will in due course take the coronation oaths. He will become defender of the faith. There was much discussion in earlier years that Charles wished to become defender of the faiths or even faiths. Uh, subtle distinctions go deep. The monarch is the supreme governor of the Church of England, a church that it, uh, in its foundational documents makes clear is built on scripture and prayer. Charles's faith is rather less explicit than that of the queen. He's also divorced and remarried. The church itself may wobble, no longer presided over by such a steadfast Christian as Queen Elizabeth, a supreme governor more faithful to Christ than any archbishop. We can only pray that Charles will come to know the Lord Jesus in the same way as did Her Majesty. Uh, so I think there is there are those questions that have been raised about what kind of leader, um, defender of the faith Charles will be. I guess only time will uh, be able to tell on that. Now, the title defender of the faith was one granted by the Pope to Henry VIII prior to uh, the schism. Work, worked well. Which is interesting. Well. Um, what's also interesting is that there is... Um, a model, I think, in England, in the United Kingdom, for dealing with issues of establishment and pluralism simultaneously. One of the interesting things to note is that the Queen, of course, passed away in Scotland, where she does not have the constitutional role of head of state of the Church of Scotland. The Church of Scotland is not, while the monarch 
<clears throat> has certain duties to the Church of Scotland. It is explicitly not the head of the ch- of that church. So there's even within the system that you know we often think of as as narrowly sort of an establishment. There's diverse roles, and there's certainly uh, in in King Charles's first address before the nation, he explicitly addresses his role as the head of the Church of England, but as also the head of a very religiously pluralistic society. And his he uh, voiced his commitment to endeavor to serve all people of, uh, of the United Kingdom and the realms, uh, no matter what their particular religious tradition. Well, not just a increasingly religious pluralistic society, but a decreasingly religious society as well, which the same trends that uh, are here in the United States and many other places certainly are also there in Great Britain. Uh, So it will be one of the challenges that he will encounter. I want to talk about one other element of uh, what happened during Queen Elizabeth II's reign as queen. Um, (laughs) This is also another sort of uh, one of the things that I found amusing is the number of people who are very hot about, you know, this uh, woman who is responsible for uh, atrocities of the uh, British Empire. Um, when, as I, I think it was Charlie Cook in National Review pointed out, I was like, you know, she, she wasn't. Um, she, again, uh, the British form of government being that she is the head of state, but not the head of the government. She was not the one making decisions about this. But she did preside over the end of the British Empire. And because I am quite attuned to this right now with the uh, the film that we produce here at the Acton Institute, uh, Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom, one of the pivotal scenes that we document in this film is in 1997, where the British hand Hong Kong back over to the Chinese. There was a 99-year lease on uh, the so-called New Territories, although the British possessed the island of Hong Kong, could have held on to that, chose not to, chose to give it back to the Chinese. And really, in short order, a lot of the promises that were made, basing it off of the mantra of Deng Xiaoping, of one country, two systems, they begin to abandon all the promises that they made. We're supposed to have 50 years of autonomy for Hong Kong. There's 25 years left, and it's uh, not looking so good. Uh, I think it does necessitate asking the question about what the legacy of how we remember the British Empire, what the legacy of it should be, because you can obviously point to examples where it was not great, uh, where terrible things happened. There, there always though, seems to be this underlying belief that if not for the British having come in and colonized the place, that everything would have been great and fine. And there's plenty of arguments to make that there would have been a, all kinds of internal fighting that were whether it's better, worse, different, hard to say. But I think you can clearly look at the example of Hong Kong. I think one of the things that really is a challenge I think people need to grapple with in this film is – we may not like the notion of empire, but it's uh, I find it hard to see the argument that Hong Kong is better off now than it was when it was part of the British Empire. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that doesn't, you know, that, that is not to say, you know, an ends justify the means, therefore, hooray colonialism. Um, but 
Uh, it is to say that, look, people live in actual societies right now in the present with a variety of different arrangements and histories. And frankly, every society has some kind of violence if you go far enough back in the history. Um, and there's always still a question of, okay, given all that history, how are things right now? And what sort of change will be for the better and what will be for the worse? And it doesn't always mean that, you know, doing the opposite of how we got here is going to undo, you know, all the bad things without also undoing perhaps many of the good things. Um, and that's a hard conversation to have, um, especially, you know, in, in certain circles, at least. Um, but again, I don't think that requires you to be like, yay, colonialism, but you can still say, yay, freedom, um, yay, democracy, uh, yay, human rights, civil rights. Um, these are things that Hong Kongers have had due to the British um, and that they have uh, progressively been losing due to communist China. So the colonial experience is not a single experience. And the colonial experience in the most wide-ranging empire the world has ever seen is equally not uniform. The colonial experience of the United States, the British Virgin Islands, Kenya, India, and Hong Kong are not the same. Um, there is also a way in which decolonization is not the same story in every single place. Most tragically, you have in India the partition in which millions of people were displaced, lost their lives in inter-religious communal violence. Then you look at something like what happened in Canada, where there is still a constitutional role um, where this entire decolonization process was very, very piecemeal, overwhelmingly peaceful, Quebecois concerns aside. Um, and you have currently still places uh, in the world like the British Virgin Islands, like the Falkland Islands, like uh, – St. Helena, where uh, Napoleon was uh, famously uh, uh, sequestered off to, you still have an administration um, of the remnants of that. And that is also a different experience um, in a different relationship. So this is this is one of those things where, you know, Things happen on social media and they have their hobby horses. They have their political hobby horses. And they're not interested in deepening any sort of understanding or appreciation of this. It's, it's just, the, 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 the British Empire is just a convenient battering ram for you know, the, the, uh, the ideological opinion of the day. Another point that probably deserves to be made is that we, we talk about these things as if they are all entirely uncomplicated and that everything in some way, if it is an empire or if it is colonial, is equal. Uh, and as you pointed out, even within the British Empire, it's not all equal. And certainly you know, different attempts at all of this were not all equal. I think one could probably muster a whole lot more criticism of you know what the Belgians did in the Congo than one can of, say, Hong Kong. These things are not simple, but they become these almost meaningless slogans uh, when they become a battering ram like that. Or when we have you – know, <laughs> 
kind of ridiculous conversations about the need to decolonize our, you know, uh, our, our coffee or our libraries or all of these inanimate things that are just not subject to really any meaningful sense of colonization or anything. But it becomes this kind of signaling shibboleth sloganeering from mostly an academic set that says, you know, oh, this is very important. And I've thought about these things very deeply when it, it strikes me that probably the opposite has happened that these things haven't been thought about very deeply at all. Yeah, I think a, a great example of how complicated it is, how unsimple it is, uh, would be somebody like Abraham Kuyper, who was prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905, a theologian, pastor. The Dutch, of course, also had an empire, uh, the Dutch East Indies. Um, and he was a part of, uh, they didn't quite decolonize, but a, a shift, a, a change in their colonial policy. Um, and... He, on the one hand, uh, he's a, a, you know, his Christian faith is over everything he writes. And he says, you know, every, every person uh, ought to be treated with dignity. And uh, the message of the gospel is for everyone. Uh, and he says, therefore, we need to support our colonies, right? Um, which is interesting because the sense you get is that his opponents who were against having colonies were also the more nationalistic um, and you know, perhaps, uh, you know, ethnic supremacists of some sort more so than him, uh, which is almost the inverse of the expectation that you get in the the one-size-fits-all narrative of colonialism. That's not to say that Kuyper made no mistakes or that his policies couldn't be better. They were fairly paternalistic, although, again, complicated. Um, but his his thought is, you know, no, not Netherlands for the Dutch, but, uh, you know, we, we need to care about all people. Therefore, we should care about the colonies, right? Um, and there's just instances like that, that if you actually read the words of real people that lived at these times and that were involved in these things, you very quickly find uh, the complexity beneath it all. I think one of the other sins that is being made here is to this desire some people have to judge all decisions that were made decades, if not centuries ago, by the standards of our current time. The idea that if anybody were to suggest that, you know, oh, we should go off and we should start colonizing a bunch of different places. Um, I, I hope it would be laughed at and it would not be taken all that seriously. But because this is the sensibility that essentially the world has arrived at now, that the idea of a British empire, of a Dutch empire, of any of these empires is not good, that we should retroactively apply that analysis to everything that happened because we've arrived at this point now where we agree that there should not be empires, that everything that happened in the past under the auspices of empire was bad. I mean, is the kind of just very reductionist analysis that is frustrating and doesn't do a service to anything. It's very important to remember that two states in Africa that became republics during the 1960s were South Africa and Rhodesia. And they did so because they feared the decolonization process that was occurring elsewhere in Africa, because these were minority white ruled regimes that saw the process that the British oversaw elsewhere in other African colonies led to dismantling of similar systems. And I think it's important to remember that, um, you know, 
even even embracing the sort of moral standards of modern progressives, that decolonization was in many ways a force for good over uh, its then colonial administrations. Let's move on now to uh, someone else who passed in the time since the last episode of this we did. We were off last week, so it's been two weeks since we have had this program. Uh, And that was Mikhail Gorbachev, who passed away on August 30th. Uh, He will always be notable for being the only person to ever hold the office of president of the Soviet Union. Uh, That office was established. He became the president of the Soviet Union on the 15th of March, 1990, and the office was abolished on the 25th of December, 1991, at the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, Certainly a much more complicated figure to discuss than Queen Elizabeth II, although we did certainly get into plenty of uh, plenty of meat there on the discussion of Queen Elizabeth II. But Dan, what what will be the legacy and what, more importantly, should be the legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev? Mikhail Gorbachev's legacy is mixed and he does not have anyone in public life in Russia or outside of Russia today that really embraces that legacy. You have on the one hand, someone who recognized the failures of Stalinism and the need for reform. His economic plan of reform, Petestroika, was a terrible failure, leading to the establishment of that presidency, which is again, which was vote, which was because he was losing support in the party. This was a way of consolidating power outside of uh, the old communist structures, trying to reform them. Um, Those economic failures were also combined with um, a hostility towards Russian decolonization. Gorbachev is someone who wanted to maintain control of places like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, of while he was willing to um, let the Eastern Bloc slip out of his fingers as uh, this was coming to an end, it would take Boris Yeltsin to really dissolve the Soviet Union itself. Um, So Gorbachev, Gorbachev is somebody who sort of wanted to maintain that Soviet imperial legacy, was an anti-Stalinist, which caused him, you know, the modern Soviet or the modern Russian Communist Party does not celebrate Gorbachev. There is no party in Russia that celebrates Gorbachev. He has sort of successfully alienated everyone. Um, I struggle giving him credit for what he did because of so much of what he did was based on trying to hold on to that. And so much of the sort of de-Sovietization that happened would have to wait until after him. And he played no constructive role in. And there were many, many mistakes made in that process. Um, but at that time, you know, he was 
persona non grata in Russian politics by the end of it. So he was able to, to preside over the partial demolition of a truly evil system uh, in fits and starts and often sort of while having his hand forced to do so and then played no constructive role in the renewal of his nation, a nation that is extremely troubled even to this day. Yeah, I think this is the problem is that what we view as the success here, the end of the Soviet Union, was Gorbachev's failure. It was not what he wanted. It, his desire was to preserve the Soviet Union. I think we can acknowledge that he recognized – I think this also draws up the comparisons we get now between the Cold War and whatever we're going to call our position now vis-a-vis China in that – you know, the problem with communist China is that it's not really communist. They are not ideological adherence to a economic philosophy that is holding them back in the way that the Soviet Union did embrace that ideology and were an economic basket case. And Gorbachev did recognize that and sought to make changes, not that would end the Soviet Union, of course, but that would make the Soviet Union continue to exist. He failed and his failure precipitated what we would view as a great good in the end of this evil system embodied in the Soviet Union. You can also give him credit, again, for not as much what he did, but what he didn't do. And he did not, as, as easy as it would have been to, you know, and really the ending of the Soviet Union to have the Red Army open fire on uh, people in Moscow, to have to send the Red Army in to the Eastern Bloc to not just let it slip away in the way that it did, but to put down those rebellions there. He could have done that. He chose not to do that. He does get some credit for not doing that. However, the language that has been used in eulogies and obituaries of him, one I saw, and I'll have to see if I can find it. If I find it, I will put it in the show notes, describing him as a liberator is just not true. It was not his intention to liberate anyone. The fact that he did not do something that would have been a violent war crime in sending the army in there to put it down is laudable insofar as it goes. But it is not the same as him intentionally wanting to liberate the uh, the Eastern Bloc, the countries of Eastern Europe from Soviet rule. None of these were things that he desired. But He does get and I think should get some credit for not making the kind of decisions that I imagine we probably would agree numerous people who came before him would have made with absolutely no compunction whatsoever. The only party in Russia to ever celebrate Mikhail Gorbachev is the pizza party. Uh, there was uh, a now you know famous Pizza Hut commercial featuring Mikhail Gorbachev, and this is what I always think of when I think of him. And it, it will turn more serious in a minute, uh, but it's some you know Russian folks eating pizza at Pizza Hut, and Gorbachev in Moscow. In, yeah. in Moscow, Gorbachev comes in, and you know he orders pizza too, and he sits down with his family or whatever, and they start arguing. They say, "Hey, it's Gorbachev." He led us to ruin. And another one says, no, he brought us freedom. And they're having this big open debate. And finally, they settle on, he brought us pizza. 
and they can agree on that. Um, and of course, the whole thing is a fiction meant to sp- sell pizza of debatable quality. Uh, but uh, arguably better quality at the time that oh, the sure. commercial came but out. Oh, sure. But this is exactly it. I mean, there there's a symbol there. You know, even even if it's ultimately an untruth. Um, he was there. He a lot of it was his failure. A lot of it was despite efforts to do um, things that would have been bad uh, for Russia. On the other hand, uh, there was a possibility that came in his wake uh, that was part of his legacy. Uh, that I do agree he does deserve some credit for. Of maybe there could be uh, a true liberal Russia, um, and for a variety of reasons that did not happen as we had hoped. Um, even in the sense of hey, you got Pizza Hut now. Uh, sure. Yeah, you got a few like you know mega franchises, but you got a lot of consolidation of the market. They they really had very little experience of a free market in Russia after the Soviet Union, even though it was an absolute improvement over uh, you know a communist system or Soviet system. Uh, they still have not had that experience of economic freedom. Um, there was some broadening of religious freedom and certainly, uh, you know, the remarkable restoration of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church um, since his time and during his time, frankly, uh, even in the 80s. Um, but now that's, you know, if you're a religious minority in Russia, you got to hope you're on the right list uh, to some degree. I mean, there, there's just and, and then, of course, the, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, you, know, you see that, that Gorbachev desire, as many Russian leaders, many Russian people uh, have this understanding of pan-Slavism or the Ruski Mir, the Russian world, that, no, Ukraine is part of Russia. It's just, you know, it was part of the Russian Empire. It's not like there's no history to this, but it does not mean there should be a present to it as well. Um, and you still see uh, that legacy, for better and worse, uh, playing out uh, in the present. Um, so that's something uh, that I think of that it, it could have we could have had, um, you know, it's it's a road not traveled. It's a it's a uh, uh, yeah, a counterfactual, but one that would have been better than the facts uh, would be this this Pizza Hut uh, commercial. Similar to that, too, I, I was just reminded of this, that it, it is hard to dole out credit for things that didn't happen. I read this piece that uh, a good friend of mine wrote on the passing in 2018 of George H.W. Bush. Um, And this is the first paragraph of this piece that he wrote. Here's the one thing you need to know about him among all the things of his crowded and extraordinary life. His most enduring legacy is the war that did not happen. It is a commonplace uh, that his predecessor in the presidency defeated the Soviet Union, and there is truth to it, but it is not the whole story. President George H.W. Bush was the man who managed deftly and successfully the western portion of the implosion of the Soviet Empire. It was a perilous passage, the abrupt collapse of an imperium and a pillar of world order that would have almost certainly produced great power war under nearly any other circumstance. It did not, largely because uh, the because the men who were president at the moment, president that is of both the USSR and the ascending United States, it is it, it is the one thing that I agree with my friend's take on that about George H.W. Bush. It's hard to give credit for things that don't happen, especially when I think he's right. The expectation would be that the collapse of something like the Soviet Union that had been you know, the the other part of the unipolar world collapsing on itself 
one would have thought it would have produced more conflict. It did not, or at least not to the scale that many would have feared, especially for a nation, a something like the Soviet Union, with nuclear weapons. It could have been so much worse. So I think, again, to that extent, one does need to credit Gorbachev in the same way that one, I think, does need to credit George H.W. Bush for the things that didn't happen. And again, it's just it's hard to really seem to make that stick with people. Um, it could have been worse if not for what they did. Well, what did they do? Well, it's kind of hard to describe and it's really hard to nail down that one specific thing. But it didn't happen. And we should recognize that. The, I mean, this is this is what's miraculous about the dissolving of the Iron Curtain is outside of Romania. This happened everywhere in the Eastern Bloc. That there was it wasn't merely that Gorbachev didn't turn on the guns, but the central committees in Hungary, in East Germany, in Poland, all of these other places had very similar tra- transitions, um, and we do have a counterpoint to that in, in in Romania. And Dylan, you have you have been there and visited some of these yes, sites, um, and there can be there can be real real horror. Um, brought in as people desperately cling to power. And, and we should be thankful. And this is what we should be thankful for, for Mikhail Gorbachev and uh, for uh, the deft sort of uh, diplomatic awareness of, of world leaders at the time in helping to facilitate this. And also the, the similar leaders in, uh, in the Eastern Bloc who also allowed their systems to dissolve. Well, from one collapse regime to perhaps another, right now in Miami, the third national conservatism conference is going on. Dan, last year you went to NatCon too, and you wrote a great cover piece for Religion and Liberty about that experience there that we will put in the show notes and that I encourage people to read. It is one of my favorite pieces that we have uh, published here since I have been here at the Acton Institute, and I encourage people to read it. Uh, Dan, obviously you're here sitting across from me. Yeah. You're not in Miami, uh, but I imagine observing as you can from afar uh, the third National Conservatism Conference from a year ago to now, what is the state of this national conservative movement? Is it rising? Is it receding? Is it about the same? I, I mean, from what I've seen, so uh, part, of, part of what I got into the piece is I don't think there is one national conservatism. There are folks that see this as just, as just a new brand for classic sort of center-right politics. Maybe it has a different sort of rhetorical edge, but they're largely... Uh, fusionists under another name. Um, you also have folks who are interested in sort of forming a new coalition, a new sort of fusionism and reconfiguring that under different terms. This is a uh, uh, last uh, last year, Yoram Hazoni tried to make the case for this in his keynote address. And in the last, you have people who are sort of interested in, in demolishing all that came before. Um, in both uh, the conservative tradition and in uh, in sort of uh, Republican governance itself. And from what I'm seeing, those are all still represented in this latest incarnation. Um, we have uh, 
you know, uh, several uh, senators speaking. Uh, Senator uh, Scott from Florida, Rick Scott. Rick Scott. Yep. I noticed. I noticed some commentators who are more of an of, of more of a national conservative bent than I am commenting that this seemed like just any old Republican speech. That there was nothing distinctive here. Uh, you had Governor DeSantis speak last night, um, who was. Uh, very different sort of vision for the Republican Party going forward. Um, uh, the coalition seems to be narrower. I noticed some of the prominent sort of self-styled post-liberal voices uh, have not returned um, from uh, last year. And it seems like some of the more outspoken sort of uh, potential non-Marxist liberals. Uh, they had a couple of folks that that would that would fit that description of the sort of coalition party, that, uh, partners that Yoram Hazoni was looking for. Um, it seems like there are fewer of those folks this year. So it seems like a consolidating phenomena that still has all those threads as sort of live options. Uh, yeah. One thing I noticed was uh, it seems to be, in addition to everything Dan said, a uh, significant lessening of uh, people who identify as uh, integralists, uh, tend to be Roman Catholic, uh, kind of religious, post-liberal uh, conservatives. Um, you know, and, and I think it's back in, was it March now? Um, a few of them uh, started their own magazine called Compact, not to be confused with the neo-Nazi magazine of the same name. Or the bridal but, magazine of the but same also, name. But also, maybe. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, they're kind of doing their own thing. They are very... Um, uh, hostile in their rhetoric on social media. Um, they are not very interested in making friends with people. They are very good at making enemies of people. And one way or another, either they were not invited back or they did not want to come back. Um, and so there's a, a fracturing there, I think. And the people who were involved for specifically religious reasons don't seem to see NatCon 3 as a place for them, or vice versa. Perhaps the organizers of NatCon 3 do not want it to be a place for them. Um, so, I mean, that that was the, the thing that stuck out to me, is that whatever this is, it seems to be shifting into, uh, you know, a more religiously open perspective. Um, and... That's fascinating for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's already a pretty small group. I mean, there there are some big names there, as Dan mentioned, um, but it's not that if you go to NatCon three, you're going to understand conservatism, right? Um, there's there's a lot of varieties of it that still exist um, and that are very different in their perspectives, um, and. Uh, you had something that was trying, at least in one aspect, to be the new dominant coalition, and it seems to be falling apart. Yeah. What I wonder is this, is there a point where this goes beyond essentially affectation, that this is, as Dan said, a branding exercise, that this is a, a you know, attempt to put a new veneer on uh, – not just this, not the same old thing in the sense of what has largely been uh, conservative consensus for a number of decades, but the the one thing that they all seem to agree on is that the left is bad, the right is generally good, and should have more power and wield it more broadly. In that sense, there may be 
parts of this that are at odds with um, the conservative movement since the 1950s, or at least the Buckleyite conservative movement, which really is the only conservative movement, at least the dominant one. I encourage people to read Matt Continetti's great new book, The Right, about all of this. Uh, but that you can certainly look at people of the right who were president, who were high up within government, who had an expansive view of state power. Go reread about the Nixon administration. Um, there is certainly – it has not been foreign to the right or conservatism to wield state power. The, the question is whether or not it has been good and effective. And I would challenge those people uh, to go back and read the history of the creation of, say, the Environmental Protection Agency and then answer the question for me, are you certain – quite certain that the things you want to establish now that the government should be doing more expansively in the names of the causes that you believe in that you don't think will turn out roughly like the EPA has turned out. Even look at George W. Bush, right? Yes. Um, despite all the fusionist rhetoric, we had uh, you know no child left behind education policy. We had um, you Medicare know, Part uh, D. Yeah, right. Uh, Medicare expansion. We had... Um, Oh, I'm 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 forgetting the other big one. Um, but we we had all kinds of you. Oh, we had the Department of Homeland Security, of course. Uh, the creation under uh, George W. Bush meant that, to consolidate our intelligence agencies, and who knows? But that's <laughs> if a, you could call that a success. I think today. that is a really interesting question that raises a counterfactual that, of course, you cannot prove. Right? If nine eleven never happens, yesterday being the twenty first anniversary of nine eleven, if you remember essentially what the George W. Bush administration came in as and came in promising. From a foreign policy perspective, it was a more humble foreign policy. But it really, the vision of the vision of government for the Bush administration was encapsulated well in a quote from George W. Bush that when somebody hurts, the government has to move. The proto-NatCon is George W. Bush. Now, all of that changes dramatically with what happens on 9-11 in ways that just frankly were unavoidable. But there is an interesting counterfactual conversation to be had about if you could play out what would have been the trajectory of the George W. Bush administration without 9-11 ever happening, what would it have looked like? And I think that is one of the challenges that I have yet to hear the national conservative people answer very well is explain to me, kind of, do you think that No Child Left Behind was good or bad? And explain to me why. Explain to me how this is, you know, is it just details on the on the margins of why your policy for education would be nationally focused? Education policy is going to be better. What's the difference here? Because uh, it had been largely consensus that no child left behind. It, nobody liked it. Just nobody. Even this federalization of education – Every teacher that I would talk to hated it, and I think largely it is shown to be unsuccessful. And yet, I am supposed to, on kind of a, a, a wish and a prayer, 
believe that whatever the chosen uh, efforts of this national conservative movement to use the federal government for the betterment of our society, and to quote from someone, um, to uh, reward friends and punish enemies is just going to work out swimmingly when we have so many examples of how it didn't. On the tamer side of that is they basically want like a no family left behind <laughs> policy, right? Maybe not not all of them want to punish enemies, though some of them do. Uh, but a lot of what they're advocating sounds sounds kind of like that. And I don't think that's something that I want. I don't think that's something that most families, just like most teachers, do not like No Child Left Behind. I don't think that's something most families would want either. I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric, but there's not a lot in terms of detailed policy programs. And this is something that I, I don't think this is a unique problem with – I don't think this is a problem unique to national conservatives. This is a problem. The Republican Party does not have a platform now. It does not. Uh, it does not, in fact, have in, in, a platform. In 2020, on which it only said run. what we said back in 2016. <laughs> that's yeah. That's all they did. Um, and you have, um, you know, is there, you know, some sort of family policy? Be it, you know, extending child tax credits. Be it, you know, the, you know, maybe. Maybe there are things, but you actually have to see those things and you have to be able to make evaluations of those things. Um, this is one of the reasons that I think uh, uh, Governor DeSantis seems to be very, very popular amongst these folks is because this is actually someone who is, like him or not, doing things um, and we've talked about some of some of those programs before on this program, and I genuinely think they're a mixed bag. I don't think everything that Governor DeSantis has done has been terrible. I don't think everything has been wonderful. I think some of those things have been necessary and good and salutary for the state of Florida. Some of them have not. They all seem sort of to be calculated for sort of maximum political impact. Um, and sometimes, sometimes that's because they're pressing issues that people are concerned about. And, and sometimes it's just, you know, okay, this is the, this is a great lever to exploit. Um, so it would be, it would be, it would be interesting to see more on the policy front and perhaps Governor DeSantis will give us that. So much, why I think so much of it seems to me to be sound and fury signifying nothing, a whole lot of rhetoric, as as you just said, is I went and double checked this. One of, I believe, the previous speakers who is not there this year uh, is one Julius Krein, whose whole effort in the journal American Affairs initially was to intellectualize Trumpism and almost immediately found out that the problem with that is you can either create an ideological system here. Or you can go along with the man who had no desire to adhere to any kind of an ideological system. And I see so much of this, especially as since you pointed out in your piece, Dan, 
so much of this is political that they're still trying to figure out which direction you go when so much of the political movement is under the sway of a single charismatic individual who does not feel the need to adhere to anything consistent. And I think that's one of the reasons you see rhetoric going in a whole bunch of different directions is because there is no consensus about it yet. And I would offer that until they resign themselves to the fact that they'll never be able to find a consensus as long as there is the need to appeal to the single charismatic individual, they're never going to find that consensus. I mean, I think that's right on in terms of, uh, you know, Yoram Hazoni's book, The Virtue of Nationalism, uh, really gained him uh, the political celebrity needed to organize an event like this and to, to spearhead a movement like this. And I think you very much could read that book is exactly an effort to intellectualize Trumpism. I don't think that book would have, at least a book with that title, would have sold near that many copies had Donald Trump not been president at the time and had there not been a real possibility that he would be president for four more years uh, afterwards. Um, that did not turn out to be the case. Um, and I think we're seeing this year that now there's kind of a big question of, you know, what are they doing? And it, it you know, as we said, it seems to be kind of fraying. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you so much for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look now in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.